Okay, so this evening we begin Chumash Shemos, the Chumash of the Geula, and a great deal happens in, in our Parsha. <coughs> there are some weeks where one feels that it's unfair that there's only one week for that Parsha, but nonetheless, we'll try and make a, a good use of our time. And we begin our discussion of Shemos with the Shemos themselves. If we read the opening psukim, and we'll see what observations there are to be made. Ve'ele Shemos b'nei Yisrael, ha'bo'e Mitzrayma, Perik Aleph, Pasuk Aleph, these are the, the sons of, uh, uh, the names of b'nei Yisrael, and they are, Pasuk Beis, Ru'uven Shimon Levi Vihuda, good, Pasuk Gimel, Yisachar Zavulun Uben Yamin, and Pasuk Dalad, Dan Benaftali, God Asher. Yosef was in Mitzrayim. He's mentioned in the subsequent Pasuk. <clears throat> and the first thing I'd like to mention, actually, is something that, uh, as is so often the case, we read the Psukim, perhaps we might not notice. Namely, the use of the letter Vav. When is it appropriate in a list of things to have the letter Vav? So, I think it's fair to <coughs> fair to say, the rule in Torah is that if you have a list of uh, items or people, you will have the letter vav connecting the final term. So, and lahavdil actually, if that's uh, if it makes it easier for us, it's really similar to how things are in English. We would say a, b, c, and d. So the and, which is denoted by the letter vav is specifically <coughs> before the final item. And indeed, uh, if you look in Pasuk Beis, that's exactly what you find. Ru'uvein, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda. There's only a Vav before Yehuda because he's the last one mentioned in the Pasuk. So too, in the following Pasuk, Gimel, Yisachar, Zivulun, Ubinyamin. Right? Only Binyamin, as the last one, mentioned in the Pasuk, has the letter Vav before his name. I mention this only because when we take a look <coughs> at the following Pasuk, Dalad, we will see a departure from the rule, where it says, Dan v'naftali, God v'asher. So you have two Vavs here, separating items or, or per- personalities one and two, Pardon me, joining personalities one and two, and also joining three and four. And of course, <coughs> the vav, which appears to be extra, is between Dan and Naftali. True to form, it should have said, if it's A, B, C, and D, it should have said Dan, Naftali, God, Ve'asher. What is the vav doing, the extra vav, see, seemingly between Dan and Naftali? An interesting shaila. <coughs> I dare say it's a yekesha shaila because uh, it's born of paying attention to detail. And in fact, it is a Yekish Shaila because it's raised by Rav Shimon Schwab and it doesn't get more Yekish than Rav Shimon Schwab. The, uh, the Rav of Kaladas uh, is sure in there. And, and he gives a very uh, practical answer. And practical answers are also uh, accepted. Who knows? Says Rav Shimon Schwab, sometimes we find... <clears throat> that the Torah phrases things in a way which makes them 
easier to pronounce. If there's something which would be cumbersome or otherwise difficult uh, on pronunciation, the Torah will help us a little bit. What does this have to do with us? Because Dan and Naftali are distinct in this list in that Dan ends with the letter Nun and Naftali begins with the letter Nun. And therefore, if there's no Vav, you'll have to then provide the distinction Dan and pause somehow and then Naftali. To help us out, <coughs> the Torah puts a Vav there to make the two names completely distinct that the Nun at the end of Dan should not run into the Nun at the beginning of Naftali. So again, a very, I would say, practical answer the Ibn Ezra uh, speaks in this vein as do other Mepharshim uh, in, in other situations in the Torah. Felicity of pronunciation is also a value and that is what is behind the mystery of the additional Vav. But it is something to keep an eye out throughout Torah because now, now that we know, now we've made a point of uh, identifying <coughs> that the norm is only to have a Vav before the final matter, the final entity in the Pasuk. There are times when a departure from that norm can express itself even in Jewish practice. And a case in point is the Arba Minim. As we know, Arba Minim, we have three of them are actually bound together at right? the Lulav with the Hadassim and Aravos. <coughs> the Esrog is not bound together. It's held together with them, but it's not bound together. And the question is, where does that come from? Why is it so? If there's a value of binding the species together, why are they not all bound together? What would it look like to bind an Esrog together with, uh, with the other three species? I don't know, but if it needs to be done, it can be done. Like everything that needs to be done can be done. And yet, we see that it's together with them and yet distinct. Say the Mepharshim, this <coughs> arrangement is alluded to in the very verse which tells us and gives us the source of the mitzvah of Arba Minim. And we know the words well. How does it begin? You shall take for yourself on the first day pre-Eitz Hadar, that's the Esrog, then Kapos Tamarim, the palm branch, which is the Lulav, Va'anafes Avos, and the myrtle branch, that's the Hadas, and Va'arve Nachal, and Aravos. So what is noteworthy in light of our discussion in that posuk that we say so often? There are two vavs there, <coughs> specifically joining the last three items together. In other words, pre Hadar is the Esrog, and then there's nothing connecting it to Kapos Tamarim, there's no vav there, but it's vavs from there till the end, Kapos Tamarim and Anaf Eis Avos. And Arve Nachal, the two vavs which are an anomaly because there should only be a vav before the final item. This is the, where the Torah is alluding to us that the uh, ideal way, the optimum way, is to have the three items that are joined together with vavs are bound together. And then, of course, they're all in the same pasuk. The esrog is also taken together. So you never know what comes from paying attention to detail, an added vav, a missing vav. Everything makes a difference. So this is the, the first observation, Vav watch, in terms of the opening sukim, are there uh, the amount that we would expect there to be, or perhaps uh, one or two more. The other observation, 
with regards to the names is as which we uh, mentioned in passing before is the order of the names namely Reuben, Shimon, Levi and Yehuda are in order as are Yusachar and Zavulun go together Binyamin is mentioned by himself Dan, Naphtali, Gad and Asher also naturally go together they're the sons of Bilha and Zilpah and then in Pasuk Hay you have Yosef and therefore specifically of all the what we would consider to be groups of the uh, of, of the Shvatim the ones that are prized apart so to speak are Yosef and Binyamin not mentioned in the same Pasuk and indeed there are other Shvatim mentioned in between them and once again Balabatishli one could say the reason why Yosef is mentioned all the way at the end is because he wasn't one of those that came down to Mitzrayim. <coughs> He's already there. So he gets a, a, a mention at the end. But Rabbeinu Bakhya says there is more to this arrangement than that. And he gives actually two fascinating explanations as to why Yosef is last. After all, one could have put him first if he's already in Mitzrayim. Firstly, says Rabbeinu Bakhya, the Torah wants to prize apart Yosef and Binyamin. Why? In order to place between them the four sons of Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Or as we read, Dan and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Why is it important that those four sons be placed in between Yosef and Binyamin? <coughs> because there's an ongoing issue one could say with regards to the the lineage of these four sons they're not from Rachel they're not from Leah rather they're from Bilha and Zilpah who were of a so to speak lesser status than than Rachel and Leah and the question that arises therefore or might be uh, uh, plaguing them or preying on people's minds <coughs> is what about the four sons? These four sons who, who are of uh, Bilhah and Zilpah, are they themselves of a lower level? Or do you have like almost like a caste uh, system or different strata, whereby you have uh, people like Reuven and Shimon, and they're from, from Leah. And then you have the, the lower echelon, so to speak, of the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. In order to disavow us of such disparity and in order to emphasize the ultimate equality of all of the Shvatim, says Rabbeinu Bachia, the Torah, <coughs> as we said, prized apart Yosef ben Binyamin and Yosef ben Binyamin are of equal pedigree, both of Rachel, and they bracket these four sons. You have Binyamin first, then Dan Naftali Gad and Asher, <coughs> and then Yosef Lelamedcha to teach you. It's, it's an equalizing arrangement, whereby as surely as Yosef and Binyamin are equal in status, so too all of those mentioned in between. It's a very interesting uh, way of looking at the arrangement. You see how through the order a certain message is being uh, communicated. Uh, in this respect, the, the bracketing of the Bnei Hashvachos with Yosef and Binyamin. That's Rabin Abachia's first explanation. But secondly, <coughs> he says that the Torah wants to put Yosef last. 
Why? Why is it important that Yosef be last? Because, says Rabbeinu Bachia, Yosef became the leader. And it is appropriate for someone who is in a position of prominence that they also be diminished. So that, of course, sounds to us like a contradiction. If they're in a position of prominence, so then they should be raised up. Why should they be diminished? Presumably, <coughs> what Rabbeinu Bachia means to say is that it's always a very delicate situation. Greatness, if a person is in a position of greatness, it is imperative that that greatness not become a self-serving value, that they become the cause. Greatness in Torah is always working for the cause, not that the person becomes the cause. And therefore, <clears throat> there always needs to be a counterpoint. As much as a person is propelled to greatness, they need to diminish themselves personally in order to ensure that they are not usurping or diverting the greatness which is really meant to be mission-orientated and not uh, self-promoting orientated. And therefore, specifically, Yosef, the leader, should be lost to ensure that, that the, the leadership that he has is pure and not uh, self-serving in that way. And what's very interesting is, says Rabbeinu Bachia, we find another example of this idea. Again, it's a very, it's a simple idea, but so profound that when a person, if a person is, is granted greatness, they need to diminish themselves in order to maintain perspective and, and the purity of motivation and their altruism. Yehoshua had his name changed relatively early on. If we take the, the location of Parsha Shalach, as bef just before they're sent in to, to spy out the land, in year two of the wilderness, Yehoshua, he was, he was upgraded, so to speak. His name was changed from Hoshea to Yehoshua, with all that goes with that, and it's, a, it's now a title of honor, almost, given to him by Moshe. And from that point on, that's what he's called, Yehoshua. But notice something fascinating, says Rabbeinu Bachia. And it's something that is very easy not to notice because it's in Parshas Hazinu. And like most things in Parshas Hazinu, we don't normally give them the attention they deserve. They're tucked away between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and we feel, feel like <coughs> we have our hands full anyway. But all the, all the more reason to, to pay attention to those psukim. Because Parshas Hazinu is when Yehoshua actually takes over as leader. This is not just being promoted to, to being Moshe's deputy. He is now taking over from Moshe Rabbeinu. Doesn't get bigger than that. And notice something fascinating, says Rabbeinu Bachia. In Parshas Azinu, as you have the changing of the uh, authority, transfer of authority from Moshe to Yehoshua, he's not called Yehoshua. The Posse calls him Hoshea. It brings it back to his original name. Because <clears throat> now more than ever, as he becomes the leader, it's important for him to remember his quote-unquote humble origins. Because in the same way that when Yosef is the leader, he's put last. When Yeshua becomes the leader on that day, he's actually called Hoshea. That is Rabbeinu Bakr's explanation of that uh, anomaly in those psukim. The, the, his, his, his greatest moment, he comes back to his simplest name. Uh, and, and, and that is the way it should be. So these are some comments again. Shemos begins with the Shemos, and uh, we try and pay as close attention as we can 
to the way things are phrased, the order in which they're phrased and, uh, and presented. Well, just a few psukim in, we have a new regime and Paro begins to make trouble for Bnei Yisrael. And let's have a look in Perik, uh, still in Perik Aleph, Pasuk Tes. Okay, so Pasuk Tes already has the new king, Melech Hadash, Perik Aleph Pasuk Tes. <coughs> and then he sounds the alarm, Pasuk Tes, Vayome Elamo, Hinei Am Bnei Yisrael. He says to his people, Look, behold, Am Yisrael, Rav Atzumimenu. They are, well, they are, they are more numerous and they are mightier than us. And that, of course, is a, a, a major question. Does Pyro really feel that the Jewish people are, are more numerous than them? Does he really feel them more mighty? He certainly sees them as a, as a threat of sorts. And what does he say? malo. <coughs> Let us deal wisely with them. And he goes on to describe the threat, Penyir Bear, maybe they'll increase more, Vayakisikrena Milchama, Venusafkam Huasoneinu, if there'll be a war, they'll align themselves with our enemies and they will do war against us. And the phrase in Pasuk Yud, which catches the attention of Ramban and other Mufarshim, is the opening phrase, Hava Nishakmalo. We need to deal wisely with them. Because the simple question is, <coughs> what, where exactly do we see Pyro's wisdom? <laughs> in other words, he sees them as a threat. He turns them into slaves. I mean, that's, it's, a, it's a very blunt solution to his problem. It doesn't seem to smack of great wisdom. But Pyro says, Where is the Chochmah in what Pyro is doing beyond brute force and oppressive decrees? The question is accentuated because one of the earliest commentaries that we have on Chumash Shemos and Parsha Shemos is actually the Pesach Haggadah. And the way that it functions <coughs> as a commentary on Parsha Shemos is that, as we know, we start with those four or five verses in Parsha's Kisavo, Aramia Vedavi. We take them phrase by phrase, and each phrase we bring a proof text from quote-unquote, the scene of the crime. We keep on going back to Shemos. Kemoshine Emar. Another phrase, Kemoshine Emar. Another word, Kemoshine Emar. Okay. <coughs> well, one of the phrases in that Aramio Vedavi paragraph is the phrase Vayoreyu Osonu HaMitzrim. The Mitzrim were evil to us. And what is the verse that is brought as the proof text? Kamoshin Emar, Shmos, Perik Aleph, Pasuk Yud, Hava Nishakmalo. Let us be wise. We quote this Pasuk of Paro saying we need to deal wisely with them. They're a threat to us. And there's your, there's your proof text. And of all of the Psukim that have this relationship of phrase and proof text in, in the Maggid section, this is the one which is the most difficult for a simple reason. It's meant to be coming to explain the three words, Vayareyu Osanu HaMitzrim. The Mitzrim were evil to us. But it doesn't describe the Mitzrim being evil to us. It describes them worrying that we'll do wrong to them. So we've traveled so far back from, the, back from Parshas Kisavo, but we don't seem to have landed in the right place. 
<coughs> because in simple English we're saying they were evil to us, as the Pasuk says, let us deal wisely with them, maybe they will wage war against us. That's not them being evil to us, that's them worrying that we'll be evil to them. And this is the question that has um, attracted much discussion in the Mephorshim. But the, the answer of Ramban is very direct and not a little bit chilling. Paro, says Ramban, has a problem. He does need to deal wisely with the Jewish people for the simple reason (coughs) that they are not really anywhere near the credible threat that that he's making them out to be. I mean, what is he saying? He's saying that uh, there are more of them than us, they're mightier than us. We don't know that that's so. If there's a war, they'll align themselves with their enemies. How do you know? None of this is actually based on anything for a change, not for the last time. It's actually not based on anything. <coughs> it's actual, it's paranoia and conspiracy. But Paro is a monarch, which means he cannot be seen as dealing irrationally with, with the people that actually have done him no harm. But still he wants to keep them in place. How do you do that? The answer, says Ramban, and that's where the Chochmah comes in. We have to deal wisely, otherwise this could backfire on Egypt. So what's the answer? The answer begins in Pasuk Tes. Vayomer el Amo. He says <coughs> to his people. That's very interesting. We normally see Pasuk Tes as, a, as, as a, a conference of sorts. Between Paro and whom? So we assume that it's Paro and his cabinet. But the Pasuk doesn't say Vayomer el Chachamav or Yoatzav or even his magicians. It says Vayomer el Amo. I mean, that's a large meeting. He says to his entire people, <coughs> meaning Paro begins by, a, by a directing his message to the people at large. Why? Because he wants the people at large to take action. The initial stage of subjugation does not begin with official decrees. It begins with street disruption. It begins with the general populace. Paro's goal (coughs) is to create unrest within his people. Why? So that they will begin to put the Jewish people in place. And it it will not in any way reflect badly on the regime, because on the contrary, one can only imagine, and Ramban says this, when should the Jewish people come to complain to Paro, to official channels, and what do the Jewish people have, if not the ability to complain (coughs) to the official channels, Paro will say, I know, we're with you. The Egyptian monarchy is with you. There's these ruffians, these hooligans, they're in the street. It's impossible to control them. In other words, what what these thugs allow Paro to do is to get his work done in a way which can, it's not officially sanctioned, (coughs) and cannot be traced back to him in a way that that looks bad for him. That's the Chachmah. And that's why (coughs) it says, Pasuk Yud Gimel Vayavidu Mitzrayim Espenei Yisrael Betharech. Mitzrayim are the ones that started to do it. They've received the green light from Paro. Nothing's on paper, 
But they know that if this happens, if the pogrom begins, no one will stop it. Nothing will interfere with it. And that's the wisdom of Paro. And says of Shlomo Kluger <coughs> in his commentary to the Agodah Shel Pesach, just to, just to bring things to, uh, uh, to, to, to a close here, that is what the Haggadah is, is uh, emphasizing. When it comments on the phrase Vayoreyu Osanu HaMitzrim, the Pasuk doesn't say Vayoreyu Lanu Paro. The Pasuk doesn't identify Paro as the source of the problems. Certainly not initially. It was the Egyptians. Well, how did they get idea? Where did that come from? Says the, says the Haggadah, Kemoshin Emar. If you want to know where that's coming from, that's Paro's idea. Havan is There is the Chachmah. <coughs> to get the word out to the, to the disgruntled Egyptian in the street in a way that the Egyptian authorities don't need to get their hands dirty at that initial stage and they can uh, claim sympathy with, with the Jewish plight in the meanwhile while their people and their rabble doing all of their work for them. So uh, it's especially important to see within Chumash Shemos and Shemos is considered to be the root Gullus experience of the Jewish people, how the things that we, we, we can identify for the first time, unfortunately, not for the last time. So, <clears throat> with the subjugation in place and the Jewish people are in great distress, we, I want to move now and devote some attention to the Mare Hasne, to the, uh, to the episode of the burning bush, as we'll see quite a lot to say and specifically a lot of attention to be to be paid once again to to details in this is in the beginning of Perak Gimel so let's t- let's turn to Perak Gimel and we know the story in general <coughs> it's the burning bush and it's not consumed all the more reason uh, as we say to to try and get a deeper understanding of what is happening. So the Perigimel begins, Moshe, he's tending the sheep of his father-in-law, and he sees this uh, amazing situation in Pasuk Beis, Perigimel Pasuk Beis. So that an angel appears to him from, from, from the burning bush. <coughs> the snare is, bur- is burning, it's not consumed. Burning but not consumed. Pasuk Gimel, Vayomer Moshe, Asura Naver Eh. I would just like to to devote one or two moments to Moshe's words, Asura Na, before we get back to the bush itself. I think there's a a very uh, major comment of Rashi here on these words. Let's read the pasuk and see what happens. Pasuk Gimel, Vayomer Moshe, Asura Naver Eh. Let me depart and see this great vision. Why is the snare not burning or in the sense that it's not being consumed? <coughs> so Moshe's words as he, as he moves, as he seeks to move towards this amazing situation, is this phenomenon is Asura na And Rashi has a four-word comment on the words Asura Na. says, Rashi, Asura Mikan, I will depart from here, Litkarev Sham, to draw near there. 
I think <coughs> this could perhaps take the prize as the simplest looking comment of Rashi in the entire Parsha. I'll draw near from here, I'll depart from here to draw near to there. What is Rashi saying? Rashi is identifying for us the fact that Moshe says asurana. The word lasur means to depart. But if you're departing, it's only a comment on where you're leaving from. It's not a comment of where you're going to. Lasur is only to depart from somewhere. Where do you go from there? Doesn't say. <coughs> but of course, Moshe wants to get to the burning bush. And that's why Rashi formats for us Moshe's vector here. Where Asurana says Rashi, true. Asurana only denotes departing from here. With the second stage, Litkarev Sham. To draw near to there where the snare is. And Rashi's comment is over. But seemingly, the simple comment leaves us wondering. Because Rashi is has basically, in his explanation, <coughs> has conceded the, the, the point that if you don't add on the final two words to move close to there, you don't get there. So it seems yet unusual that the, the Pasuk is laying emphasis on where Moshe is moving away from and not giving any reference to where he's moving to, even though the goal is to move there. The question seemingly remains, Rashi's highlighted the issue, <coughs> the question seems to remain unresolved. Why emphasize leaving here? And I think, perhaps on a somewhat emotive level, I think there's a, there is a great lesson contained within this Rashi. And that is an apparition the likes of the burning bush. Who would not draw near to such a thing? I mean, what, is, what else is going on in life that can rival such an experience, such an encounter? What would stop a person from drawing near to there? The answer is only one thing. Being here. In other words, <coughs> even a, 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 an, an apparition so unusual as a bush that is burning and not consumed, there's only one thing that would stop a person from engaging in that apparition, <coughs> from pursuing it further. And that is the fact that he's here and what does here represent? It represents the things that he's doing. So often in life, there are massive events that are occurring, profound experiences to be had, but they're, out, but they're over there. And what's, what stops us sometimes is that we're here and we have our routine and we have our way of doing things and we have our schedule and we have our timetable. And it just really doesn't allow us to break out of it, to engage <coughs> in anything whatever it will be. The center of gravity here is departing from here. As soon as you do that, nothing will stop you from getting close to there. As soon as you, a person is just prepared to break from the way that they're just going about things, because that's how they're going about them, uh, trapped almost in, in terms of the way that they do things, the, the main, <coughs> the deep work is to break out of here. As soon as you've asura mikan, Nothing will stop you from being with Karev. It doesn't even need to be said in the Pasuk. As soon as you're free, so to speak, from here, if something's going on there, you'll be there. I think that's, that's uh, at least part of what 
<coughs> this deceptively simple comment of Rashi on Asurana. But let us get down to business and discuss the, the symbolism of the burning bush. And I think what's important to, to, uh, to do at the outset is really to divide the question in two. <clears throat> because there are two things that are happening here. And the answer to the one is not necessarily the answer to the other. The message from one is not necessarily the message from the other. Namely, <clears throat> Hashem appears to Moshe in a snare, in a bush, which means question number one is, why a snare? Secondly, whatever the entity is, it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. It's burning, but not consumed. What is the message of it being burning and not consumed? And these are two separate things. <clears throat> and perhaps the answer to, to both of them is the same, but not necessarily. So Al Rishon Rishad, the first thing we should know in terms of what is symbolized by the um, by the, 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 the sneh, the bush itself, which is a low thing. Which part of this of the story here is being referenced there? Well, we find two <coughs> differing opinions in Chazal. One in the Medrash Rabbah and one in the Mechilta. So both of them are on the level of Medrash. The Medrash Rabbah says that the snare represents the Jewish people. And the way that the snare represents the Jewish people is because it's a lowly bush and the Jewish people are in a lowly state at the moment. Which means the snare, that low entity, is the Jewish people who are themselves in a lowered state. <coughs> the Medrash goes on to say, Medrash Rabbah goes on to say, that this is the very same symbolism of the fact that it's burning but not consumed. Because that, true, that too is true of the Jewish people. All of their difficulties in Egypt, they're, they're burning but not consumed. They're undergoing difficulties. And, and interestingly, the only way that fire works on something, if it's not to consume it, is to purify it. And we find that Mitzrayim will be referred to in Parshas Vaischanan, later on in Chumash Devarim, as Kur HaBarzal, as the smelting furnace. <coughs> so the heat of the fire for the Jewish people is not to consume them. It's to refine them in all the ways that the Mefarshim discuss. But, be that as it may, once again, to summarize what the Medrash Rabbah is saying, it's all about the Jewish people. All aspects are, be, are, are symbolizing the Jewish people. The, 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 the bush is low because the Jewish people are low. It's burning but not consumed because the Jewish people are burning but not consumed. However, the Mechilta, which is the uh, collection of Midrash, Medrash Halacha on says that the snare actually represents Mitzrayim. Not because it's low, but because it's thorny. And it's a thorny bush and the Jewish people themselves are entangled there. They can't get out. They're, in, they're, in, they're entrapped there. So for the Mechilta, unlike the Medrash Rabbah, it is the, cons the, the nature of the, not so much low versus high, but the, the prickly and thorny nature <coughs> of, the, of the snare, which actually makes it a reference to Mitzrayim. And the Mechilta does not expand on 
the understanding uh, or the concept of burning but not consumed? In what way then uh, is the what's referred to there by the snare burning or not consumed? That we will yet need to see. Rashi, if we if we now achar hadvarim ha'ele, having seen the two approaches within Chazal, Jewish people or Egyptians, Rashi's comment <coughs> is is not. Uh, entirely explicit, but Rashi's words on the words mitochasne in Pasuk Beis, velo ilan, not a tree. Uh, in other words, Rashi is almost voicing as a question. And perhaps the question is if HaKadosh Baruch Hu is appearing, <coughs> is appearing to Moshe. Surely one would expect that to be from an elevated place. I mean, this is a divine presence. Why is a divine presence appearing to Moshe from a lowly place? Says Rashi, Mishum Imo Anochi Batsara. Because, as the Pasuk says in Tehillim, Hashem is with the Jewish people in their distress, and therefore they're in a low place. Hashem appears to Moshe from a low place. It's not explicit, but I think it's fair to say that Rashi would seem to be in line with the Medrash Rabbah that the, the, the lowly shrub is the Jewish people. If they're in a low place, Hashem appears to Moshe from a low place. <coughs> and that's all Rashi comments on. He only discusses in Pasuk Beis the, the, the symbolism of the lowly bush. He does not comment on the symbolism of burning but not consumed. So what about that? However, as much as Rashi doesn't comment on that aspect of the bush in Pasuk Beis, he does comment on it later on. And what's fascinating about that later comment is that (coughs) everything will change as he comes to explain that second idea of burning but not consumed. Where, Where do we find Rashi's comment on this? Let's take a look at, Perik, at Pasuk Yud Aleph and Pasuk Yud Beis. And we need to look at these Pasukim carefully because there is a basic issue that uh, Rashi will be dealing with. Pasuk Yud Aleph and Pasuk Yud Beis. Moshe begins to, 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 to raise questions. And in fact, he raises two questions in Pasuk Yud Aleph. Vayomer Moshe el ha'elokim, mi anochi ki elechel paro. Who am I that I would go to paro? The chiyotzias bnei Yisrael mitzrayim, and that I would take the Jewish people from Egypt. Now, although one could read this as one question, who am I to go to paro? Who am I to do this? Rashi explains that Moshe is actually asking two questions. Question number one: Who am I? Meaning, what, what merit do I have to, to be the one to go to Paro? But the second half of Pasuk Yud Aleph, says Rashi, is a separate question. Namely, how can I take the Jewish people out of Egypt? What merit do they have? So to be clear, according to Rashi, Moshe in Pasuk Yud Aleph is voicing two questions. Question number one, who am I? <coughs> what merit do I have? To go to, or to, to, to Paro and, and be the, one, the agent of releasing them. And number two, what merit do the Jewish people have? And having identified Moshe's two questions in Pasuk Yud Aleph, 
Let us now come to see Hashem's answers to those questions in Pasuk Yud Beis. And we'll, we'll, we'll see there's a bit of a chap in, in what Rashi is saying. Pasuk Yud Beis. Hashem responds to Moshe. Vayomer ki imach. Hashem says, I will be with you. What is that a response to? Well, obviously, that's a response to Moshe's first question. His question was, who am I? That I, could, that I would go to power. Hashem says, don't worry about who you are. I'll be with you and just go. That's that. <clears throat> now, the next phrase needs to be watched most carefully. Hashem says, And this for you is a sign that I have sent you. Let's leave that just for a moment, because the balance of the Pasuk, Hashem says, <coughs> When you take, take the people out of Egypt, <laughs> You will serve Hashem on this very mountain, on Chorev, Har Sinai. That's where the burning bush is. So, let's start with what's clear in the verse, and then we'll head towards the center. If Hashem is addressing Moshe's two questions, which again are, one, who am I? And two, what merit did the Jewish people have? So the answer to the first question is, I'll be with you. That's who you are. I'll be with you. And, and the answer to the second question is, what merit did the Jewish people have? It's in the future. Don't worry. When you take them out, they'll be serving me on this mountain. Plenty of merit. I'm giving them an advance. What we've ignored for as long as possible is the middle phrase, which says, And this is the sign that I have sent you. And the question is, is that attached to answer one about who Moshe is? Or is it attached to answer two, the merit of the Jewish people? Rashi says it's attached to answer one. And the reason why Rashi says this is because (coughs) if Hashem is saying, this is the sign that I have sent you, and he tells him a future event. So then that's not a sign that's of any use to anyone. Because it hasn't happened yet. Hashem says to Moshe, if you, want, if you want to give a sign, to have a sign, or to give a sign that I've sent you, the following will happen in three months. And that should do you for now. It won't do you for now. It's not three months yet. And that's why Rashi says the words, this is a sign, is about the first answer. Who am I? I'll be with you, and this is a sign for you. But what's the this? What's the sign? Says Rashi, you know what the sign is? The burning bush. Just picking up two or three lines into verse Rashi on verse 12. This, like on Seder night, pointing to something. The, the bush itself. That's the sign. I've sent you. And you will succeed in my, in my uh, mission. Look at this bush. It's performing my will. It's burning, but it's not consumed. So too, you're heading into the furnace. You're heading into Pyro's lair. You won't be consumed. You might be burned. You won't be consumed. You'll be on fire. You won't be consumed. 
So what's amazing about the Rashi, <coughs> and again, we've been as clear as we can as how Rashi is parsing, so to speak, the verse, the syntax, which, which phrases apply to what. But what's fascinating about this, this comment of Rashi is he's finally explained to us the symbolism of the bush burning but not being consumed. Who is that a reference to? Moshe. Moshe will burn but won't be consumed. That's your sign. This is a sign what's happening here will happen to you. Or more correctly, what's not happening here won't happen to you. So why is this so, so significant? Because we see that Rashi has prized apart the two questions of, A, our opening questions of a few moments ago, in this whole episode. Question one, why a bush? What's the symbolism of a bush? A lowly bush. And number two, what's the symbolism of burnt but not consumed? And Rashi gives two different answers to these two questions. <clears throat> and in fact, they're so different that the bush isn't even referring to the same entity in each answer. In answer to the question, question one, why a lowly bush? The answer is because the Jewish people are in a lowly state. But in answer to the question of why, what is the meaning of burning but not consumed? It's not about the Jewish people anymore. It's about Moshe. Moshe will burn but not be consumed. And so you have these two elements almost grafted onto each other. <coughs> the choice of a bush is for purposes of the Jewish people. The, the, the phenomenon of burning but not consumed is for purposes of Moshe. Two different players within this situation come together in this uh, vision of the burning bush. The only uh, approach that remains, which will wrap things up for us, in this regard, is that of Rabbeinu Bachia. And Rabbeinu Bachia is very much aligned with the uh, Michilta in the sense that the Michilta says the burning bush is, about, is the Egyptians, right? The Jewish people are in the Egyptians. Now, what we find here in Perik Yudtes, pardon me, Pasuk Yudtes and Pasuk Kaf, it's all in Perik Gimel. <coughs> We're not going to get that further from the burning bush. Moshe was there for seven days. The least we can do is be here for 45 minutes. So, Pasuk uh, Yutes, Hashem says to Moshe, Adati, I know ki lo laloch. You should know. I'm telling you now. The king of Egypt will not let you go. Velo biyad chazaka. Regardless of what happens, he's not going to let you go. Not, for, not until I'm ready for him to let you go. Pasuk kaf yadi. BKCS Mitzrayim, I'll send out my hand. <coughs> I will smite the Egypt. He will endure all of that unbelievably, inexplicably. And then he will, and only, uh, then and only then will he send you. Says Abinu if you wish to know, what is being symbolized by the bush burning and not being consumed? It's Paro. Because he'll be burning for a while. And naturally speaking, he'd be consumed and just be reduced to, to dust after the first plague. Yet somehow he will be given the ability to keep going. And he'll be burning, 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 but not consumed 
And that is the reference to the phenomenon of the hardening of Pyro's heart until the time comes for him to let the Jewish people go. <clears throat> and so if we can summarize, and it's really, of course, what's so fascinating is that we, what the Torah gives us is the encounter. It gives us a description of the bush, and it tells us these two things. It's a lowly bush, burning but not consumed. But who does it refer to? I think we're able to say the answer is Shnaim Shehim Arba. That is to say, we have different views within Chazal as to uh, whether the, the bush, the lowly bush, symbolizes the Jewish people or uh, the, the Egyptians, right? In terms of <coughs> the, 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 the thorny bush, and burning but not consumed could be the Jewish people in terms of withstanding and enduring their gollus, or it could be Moshe, who is unharmed as he goes to Pyro, or it could be Pyro himself, who, who unnaturally is able to stay the course of the, of the ten makas, one of which would have knocked out uh, any normal person. So these certainly uh, a great deal to think about with regards to the message of the Mare Hasne. I'd just like to, to conclude maybe our final few moments by referring to the signs. As we'll see, it really is a progression of the, of the discussion we've just had. But Moshe voices, he voices concern that the Jewish people won't, won't believe him and, <coughs> and Hashem seemingly ratifies those concerns because he gives, the, he gives Moshe signs. Which means when Moshe says they won't believe me, Hashem doesn't say to him, yes, they will, and, and just go. Hashem gives them signs. So it seems to be something of a of, of a valid concern. Mepharshim say that on Moshe's level, in the beginning of Perik Dalet, Vayan Moshe Vayomer Vehein lo yaminulu. Vehein means indeed. It doesn't say Vehein with a mem, them. Vehein means indeed. Indeed they won't believe me. That's where Moshe is faulted. Because even if he was correct to voice concern, but he was not correct to say they will indeed they won't believe me as a matter of definitely. How can he know for sure that they won't believe him? Sometimes, <clears throat> as much as a person is entitled to be concerned over something, they don't need to assume a definitely that something bad will happen, whether it's about the Jewish people. And Moshe paid for this. As the Medrash says, it's a very it's a terrible uh, Medrash, uh, terrifying uh, idea. But, but Hashem said to Moshe, when his days drew near to leave the world, Hein karvuya mechalamus, indeed, indeed your, your days have come near. And that's an emphatic term, Hein karvuya mecha. And Moshe was upset, says the Medrash. <coughs> Moshe says, I use the word Hein to, to praise you. The Pasuk says in Ekev, Hein l'ashem elokeinu, ashamayim, ushemer shamayim. I use the word Hein in your praise. And you're using it to... to, to to emphasize that I'm leaving the world. And Hashem says, yes, because the first time you used the word hein is when you said, vehein le'yaminuli. These are the exacting levels of the, of the leaders of the Jewish people, none higher than, than Moshe Rabbeinu. However, the concern is a concern, and Hashem gives, uh, gives Moshe signs. And what are the signs? Well, the first sign is in Pasuk Gimel, where, where Moshe has his staff, Hashem says, Ashlichayu Arza, Peregdalet, Pasuk Gimel, throw it down, Vashlichayu Arza, Vailenachash, it became a snake. But then in Pasuk Dalet, Hashem says to Moshe, uh, pick it up, pick it up by the tail, and it will become a staff again. So sign number one is uh, staff to, <coughs> to snake and snake to staff. Okay. The second sign, 
is in Pasuk Vav. Vayom Hashem lo od. Hashem said further, put your hand into your tunic. And he does. And he took it out. His hand was, was leprous white. But then when he put his hand back in again, it became healed as, as, he, took, as he took it out. And the final sign <coughs> in Pasuk Tess, if they don't listen to these uh, two signs, take from the water of the Nile, pour it onto dry land, the, the water from the Nile will turn into blood. So, to summarize, these are the three signs for Moshe. Sign number one is that the, that the staff turns to a snake and back again. Sign number two, his hand turns leprous white when he puts it into his tunic <coughs> and then his healed is when he takes it out from his tunic. And number three, the blood from uh, water from the Nile turns into blood. And the question, of course, once again, that the Mepharshim ask is, Manishtanu ha-signs hazem, we call ha-signs, as if to say, if there are miracles uh, happening, so then anything could be turned into anything. What is the specific message within these three particular signs? And again, many Mepharshim discuss this, Ze'omer Bako, Ve'ze'omer Bako, each one takes their, has their uh, specific approach. But a very a wonderful comment is found in the uh, parish on the Torah called Nachlas Yaakov by Rabbi Yaakov of Lisa. Rabbi Yaakov of Lisa of, of Lemberg, um, the author of the Nesiva Samishpat, the famous contemporary of the Ketosachoshen. <coughs> he wrote many, many uh, different works and he has a slim volume on the Torah called Nachlas Yaakov. And Rabbi Yaakov of Lisa says that what is happening with these three signs is that Hashem is actually addressing three concerns that Moshe had. Two of them we've mentioned, and there is a third. The two that we've mentioned is Moshe wants to know, what about the Jewish people? <coughs> they don't seem to be overflowing with merit. They don't seem to be deserving of being uh, re- redeemed, certainly not at this stage. So what is the response to that? That's the first question. The Jewish people seem to be in a low spiritual state, not worthy of redemption. The second question of Moshe is, what about Moshe himself? He doesn't feel that he's worthy to be the one, the Hashem's emissary, to take them out. And there is a third issue. And the third issue is, and this is something which is discussed uh, by Chazal, every uh, nation <coughs> has a certain spiritual overseer, which is entrusted then to become the conduit through which it receives its sustenance and achieves its success and its well-being. These are the sarim. These are the, the concept of the sarim. And they are they're over the kings, obviously, and of course, equally obviously, under Hashem. That's what we, it's to these sarim, by the way, <coughs> Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says elsewhere. Again, it's a phrase we say so often. We refer to Hashem as melech malcheyam lachim. Right? Lifnei melech malcheyam lachim. And what is the translation of melech, of melech malcheyam lachim? The king of kings. That's actually inaccurate. Because we've missed out a set of kings. The Hebrew for king of kings is Melech Hamlachim, king of kings. But we don't talk about Hashem as Melech Hamlachim. We talk about him as Melech Malchei Hamlachim, which surprisingly enough translates as the king of kings of kings. 
But who are the kings of kings? Says Rebbeinu Bachia there, the Sarim. That's the spiritual overseer who are yet in this authority position over their uh, nation. <coughs> Very interesting. Melech Machayam Lachim. And the, the Medrash further tells us that if ever a nation will meet its downfall, its spiritual overseer will meet its downfall first. Because it's a hishtalshilus. What happens up there then reverberates down to here. Moshe did not see any uh, impact or any damage or, uh, being uh, inflicted or incurred <coughs> upon the spiritual overseer of Egypt. And therefore, his knowledge of how these things work made it difficult for him to see how the Jewish people could, could be delivered from them. E- e- Egypt seems to be alive and well. Hashem addresses each of these (coughs) with one of the signs. With reference to the question of the Jewish people, they seem to be in a low spiritual state and therefore, how how do they deserve to to be redeemed? To that comes the first sign. The very same entity, a staff of God. If you throw it down on the ground, it can become a snake. and you pick it up again, it can become a staff of God again. And what that means is it's the same thing. But it, it, it looks like it's doing much better when it's a staff of God than when it's a stake, than when it's a snake. But what determined what its state? Is it on the ground there? Or is it in Moshe's hand? And that's what Hashem is saying. That's the Jewish people. <clears throat> in other words, you see them in a very low state. You see them as, a, as, as a, a, akin to, to the snake. It's because they're on the ground. No one's picked them up. But you pick them up, the very same people that become a staff of God in your hand. That's the answer to your question, because there's nothing inherently missing about them. It's just a question of positioning and the circumstances in which they're in. That's the first sign, the Jewish people. (coughs) And what about the second sign? Moshe says, who am I? And Hashem says, don't say that. You can't say that. Why? Because I've told you to go and the Jewish people need you. And when that happens, you can't say, who am I? Because if you do, you know what that's called? Tomein yodo becheiko. That's called folding your hands in your tunic and doing nothing. And that's not an option. Throughout Chazal, <coughs> we see this expression. Tomein yodo becheiko. It's a person whose arms are folded, who remains inactive, who should be involved, but isn't involved. <coughs> and really what Hashem is saying to, to Moshe, if you say, who am I? The answer is not, you're a wonderful, amazing person, which of course Moshe is. Lo Moshe. Hashem says, it doesn't matter who you think you are. If you keep your hands in your tunic, they'll turn leprous. Because the Jewish people need you, and I've told you to go. And therefore, when he takes his hand out, he sees it's leprous. But the second time it says, When he removes it fully from his tunic, means he's ready to act. His hand comes back and is, is fully, uh, fully healed. Fascinating explanation of the second sign. And the third sign, <coughs> of course, is about taking water from the, from the Nile. And the Nile was, was worshipped as a deity. That's the flow. That's what, that's what gives um, sustenance <coughs> physically to, to the Egyptians. Says HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Nile's days are numbered as far as the Egyptian protection is concerned. Take water from that. It will turn into blood. Everything from the highest levels is about to be overturned for, for the Egyptians and they will be defeated and the Jewish people will be 
saved. So these are some of the classic comments from Rishonim and Achronim with regards to the Egyptians' plans for the Jewish people, the Mare Hasneh with all that goes with that, those signs that are given to Moshe, so much contained within these, uh, within these episodes. Uh, and of course, the rest is yet to come, Ritz Hashem, as the Geula begins to unfold in next week's Parsha. But we'll leave it over here for this evening. Wish you all a good night and a wonderful weekend. All the very best.